Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and your moderator for this morning. Today is Sunday, April 25th, 2021. The Share ID numbers for Friday, April 23rd are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,823. That's 16823. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,824. That's 16824. This morning, A Vision for You presents, Okay, you have worked the steps. Now what? It has been said that whenever a civilization or society declines or perishes, there is always one condition present. They forgot where they came from. The study of the history of Alcoholics Anonymous will show us what it was that worked and resulted in so many men and women who recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Chapter 11, A Vision for You, is a summary of the big book, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and the growth of the fellowship at that time. It provides an overview of Bill Wilson's initial meeting with Dr. Bob and Dr. Bob's own release from the merciless obsession. Chapter 11 summarizes the growth of the fellowship and AA's earliest days in Akron and the early mushrooming process which began. A Vision for You is an amazing piece of writing that provides hope and guidance for alcoholics. Like the rest of the big book, it is full of experience, emphasizing the need of a spiritual awakening to transform one's life. It teaches us that in order to ensure our recovery, we find it absolutely necessary to find others who are suffering as we once were. This allows us to let them know that we understand their misery. Yet, we have found a solution through the application of the 12 steps and a relationship with power. We can now share our experience, strength, and hope and be a demonstration of God's power living through us. Joining us today to bring to life Chapter 11, A Vision for You, is Harlan G., Recovered Compulsive Overeater from Scottsdale, Arizona. Harlan is a loyal servant of Overeaters Anonymous who is dedicated to teaching and living the program ever of recovery as outlined in the big book. And it's with great pleasure and tremendous appreciation that I welcome Harlan to the line. Good morning, Harlan. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. And it is just a beautiful, beautiful day here in Arizona. And it's still dark, but it's a beautiful day, and I hope it is where all of you are as well. Um, We come into this program and... We are battered and bruised 
by a disease that we didn't cause, we can't cure, and we can't control. We come into this program with a lot of doubt and a lot of pain. The loneliness that we felt, even in a crowd, is just unbelievable. And as my friend Leah M. likes to say, the shackles of this disease are too soft to be felt until they are too hard to be broken. We come in here bruised and battered, as I've said. And for many of us who reached a point of extreme morbid obesity, I know that for myself, strictly for myself, I was an object of ridicule wherever I went. I broke furniture. I got stuck in cars. I lived in the city of Chicago, born and raised in Chicago, which was the second largest city in the United States of America till 1970. Now we're the third. But I couldn't find pants to fit me in the city of Chicago. I had to buy the biggest pants they had and take them to a dry cleaner, take them to a tailor to get a, a piece of material put in them. I was an object of ridicule wherever I went. Children laughed at me. Adults laughed at me. People would slap my stomach and ask me when the hippopotamus was due. They would come up to me and say, do you know how fat you are? Do you know how much, how much do you weigh? Things like that. I have been embarrassed and ashamed by this disease from the time I was a child, from the time I was in kindergarten, but even before kindergarten, my eating and my weight became a subject of embarrassment and shame. I hid and I ate and I got fatter and fatter. And the more I wanted to acquiesce to the demands of the world around me, the more apart from that world I became. Perhaps you're on the anorexic side. Perhaps you're a restrictor. Perhaps your story isn't like mine, where you could walk down the street and everybody knew that there was something very, very wrong with your relationship with food. Perhaps you appeared normal. There are many of us who come in here at very normal weights. But underneath was this unbelievable current of loneliness and pain and despair because you couldn't control the amount you ate once you started and you couldn't stop. You couldn't stop once you've started, excuse me, and you couldn't stay stopped once you stopped. You had a physical allergy which condemned you to eat food against your will and you had a mental twist that drove you irresistibly into the food. There is a song that the disease can sing that as the, the sirens would call these sailors to the rocks to dash their ship, the song of the disease is one that calls us to dash our dreams and destroy our lives. What is it about our lives? What is it about our minds, our egos, that causes us to bring such pain upon ourselves that the disease just takes hold and we cannot live as normal people anymore? We come in here and hopefully we recover. So few of us do. As my friend in South Jersey likes to say, <clears throat> we come in by the hundreds and we leave by the 99s. How sad. But for the few of us or for the many of us who do recover, 
We've worked the steps. We've gone through the process. And what now? What happens now? What is the purpose of the chapter of vision for you? This used to be chapter 12. Now it's chapter 11. Because the doctor's opinion was moved from the first chapter to the Roman numeral section after the first edition. And in the second edition, and for every edition henceforth, the doctor's opinion is in the Roman numeral section because it was determined that the book should be for alcoholics by, an al- by alcoholics. And so the doctor's opinion was moved to the Roman numeral section, and the chapter of vision for you became chapter 11 rather than 12. What is the purpose of today's uh, study? What is the purpose of the chapter of vision for you? It's to answer a very, very basic question. It's also the chapter that we get our name from. The group of vision for you gets its name from this chapter. But the purpose of this chapter is to answer a very, very basic question. What will my life look like without the food, sans the food? What will my life look like when the loneliness, when the despair, when the horrific nightmarish pain seems to be, not seems, but starts to become a thing of the past? And my life now has room in it for a fellowship and joy and Oh, the unbelievable journey. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. If I had a pill here that would cure you of this disease, I would not let you have it. I'd throw it in the toilet because the journey of this recovery is the most magical, the most unbelievable journey you could ever take. Oh, the people you'll meet and the places you'll go. Oh, the joy of this is just not to be missed, not to be missed at all. But for those keeping score, let's go to page 151, and if you care to join me, let's endeavor to crack open the chapter of vision for you, the final chapter in what the first 164 pages comprises. For most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, and colorful imagination. Now, I'm going to stop right there for just a minute, because I think with eating, even at a very, very early age, it is something that is a little different in that for uh, most alcoholics at the beginning, at the end of their run, they don't. They don't really have the fellowship around them. They they tend to start to isolate at some point in their drinking career. But people tend to eat in private. They tend to sneak food. We get a message very early in life, usually when we're single digits, that there is something wrong with us for doing this this eating. And so we tend to hide in closets, hide in corners, hide in basements, garages, barns, what have you, to do our eating. We kind of miss out on the conviviality part of it. There may be some, you know, with binge buddies and stuff, but Food represents for us a release from the pain of eating. I have eaten railroad cars full of Chips Ahoy cookies to kill the pain of eating Chips Ahoy cookies. And it is only in this group where that makes any sense at all whatsoever. 
It means release from care, boredom and worry. It is joyous intimacy with friends and a feeling that life is good, but not so with us in those last days of heavy drinking. The old pleasures were gone. They, they were but memories. Never could we recapture the great moments of the past. There was an insistent yearning to enjoy life as we once did and a heartbreaking obsession that some new miracle of control would enable us to do it. There was always one more attempt and one more failure. And one of the reasons that I grew to hate myself with such loathing was that I knew that I was lying to myself every time I swore oaths to God and oaths to others that I was going to stay on my diet, that I was not going to eat this way anymore, that this was the end, that this humiliation was over, that this weighing 400 pounds was over, weighing 500 pounds was over, weighing 600 pounds was as far as I was going to go, weighing 700 pounds, well, I hope I die because I couldn't lie to myself anymore. And the fact that I can look at myself in the mirror today and like what I see is a miracle of God and a miracle of this fellowship and this way of life. But why wouldn't I hate myself? I was doing it, and I was doing it in a way that made me believe that I was at fault because that's what everyone told me. No one told me, son, you have an illness of the mind and an illness of the body. They said things to me like, your willpower will get rid of this problem. You can do it. You just have to discipline yourself. And every dream I dared to dream went up in smoke. Every dream I dared to dream was dashed into garbage by the onslaught of this disease until one day you gave me a book, you gave me your hand to hold, and let's just continue the journey through the chapter, and it gets better. The less people tolerated us, the more we withdrew from society, from life itself, as we became subjects of king alcohol, shivering denizens of his mad realm, the chilling vapor that, it's, that his loneliness settled down. It thickened, ever becoming blacker. Some of us sought out sordid places, hoping to find understanding, companionship, and approval. Momentarily, we did. Then we would, then would come oblivion and the awful awakening to face the hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, despair. I lived in terror, terror that my rent wasn't paid, terror of the landlord, terror of other people, terror of children, terror of other adults, terror of people that I said to myself I knew were going to chastise me because of the weight that I had gained since the last time I saw them. I had no direction. I was bewildered by life. I didn't know how to make a decision. I couldn't make a decision. And I found myself feeling sorry for myself all the time. I saw my friends with the guidance of their parents. I saw my friends with the support of their families, starting careers, starting families, starting businesses, being thin, getting married, having girlfriends, not in that order, having girlfriends, then getting married, sorry, uh, 
and having children and having a normal life, which I could not have. I was just busy eating or not eating all of the time. I was either in a state of wanton eating or in a state of trying not to eat. But either way, I was bewildered and I thought of myself as being unworthy to live and I begged God constantly for death. Frustration. Oh, was I frustrated. No matter where I turned, the food had me checkmated. And despair. Oh, did I have despair. I went on my first date with a girl. I was 35 years of age. I was physically and emotionally emasculated by an illness that I didn't understand, that I couldn't cure, I couldn't control, and I didn't cause. So my life was one of suicidal thoughts. My life was one of anger toward God. My life was one of negative thinking. My life was one of a spectator. I was sitting in the stands watching life pass me by, never being able to join in any of the reindeer games that I saw. I couldn't date. I couldn't get married. I couldn't have children. I couldn't do the things my friends could do. And so I became an outsider at a very, very early age. And I know in my heart from talking to thousands of you since I came in here on February 2nd, 1979, 42 years ago. I have 22 years of abstinence. I have 42 years in the program. You can do the math. But the real bottom line is this. I can tell no matter how normal you may look, no matter how stunning you may look, no matter how wonderful you may be, I know the pain that brought you here because you've shared it with me over the last four plus decades. Unhappy drinkers who read this page will understand. Now and then a serious drinker being dry at the moment says, I don't miss it at all. I feel feel better, work better, having a better time. As ex-problem drinkers, we smile at such a Sally. We know our friend is like a boy whistling in the dark to keep up his spirits. Because when we're not eating, when we're not purging, when we're not doing what we do, we just think, oh, this is better, this is better. But the whole time I knew that it wasn't. And why wasn't it? Because food was never my problem in the first place. I didn't know it then, but food was not my problem. Food was my solution to the problem. Now, if food was the solution to my problem, what was the problem? Well, lack of power is my dilemma. Lack of power over what? Lack of power over the government? No. Lack of power over the price of tea in China? No. Lack of power over the buildup of human emotion. Now, all human beings have Guilt, shame, remorse, happiness, fear, anger, lust, regret, remorse. I could go on, but won't. All human beings have these emotions. We wouldn't be human if we didn't. And in a normal human being, in a normal person, 
they can dissipate the toxicity of these emotions very readily. They can read a book, drive out a bucket of golf balls, go for a walk, listen to music, whatever, go to the gym, and they come back from these activities and suddenly find themselves just fine. And you see them all the time. And we wonder why we can't be like them. But in my mind, anger and fear and jealousy and happiness, yes, happiness, all these things will pinball around and I start to obsess about these things and I have a mind that's different from a normal person's mind. In my mind, my brain has a mental twist. And the mental twist knows the sweet relief that a Kit Kat bar will provide me. And my mind says, eat a Kit Kat bar. And I try to resist that thought for a while. And my brain will say, you deserve a Kit Kat bar. You haven't had one for about 15 minutes. You need one. You should have one. And that song that I talked about before that the disease sings becomes very enchanting to me. And I eat the Kit Kat bar. I eat the cookie. I eat the fried food. I eat the bread. Not because I'm conscious of this, but because my brain is looking for sweet relief from the intense pain of not eating. And eating becomes preferable. Dr. Silkworth writes in the doctor's opinion, men and women drink because they like the effect produced by alcohol. This effect is so elusive that, <clears throat> excuse me, the sensation is so elusive that while they admit it is injurious, they cannot after a time differentiate the true from the false. What that means is I will tell myself that this time it's going to be different, that this time I won't put on weight, and this time I won't eat everything in sight, and I do. To them, their alcoholic life seems the only normal one. They are restless, irritable, and discontented unless they can again experience the sense of ease and comfort which comes at once by taking a few drinks, drinks which they see others taking with impunity. Impunity just means that they have not been punished for it. And I eat the candy, I eat the cake or what have you in search of relief from the intense, searing, debilitating, unbelievable pain of not eating. And eating becomes preferable to where I am. In spite of everything, my brain, because of the mental blank spot, the mental blank spot is the built-in forgetter. The mental blank spot will prevent me effectively from remembering what the food does to me, and I can only focus in on what the food does for me, and I want that benefit. Because when I'm not eating, not only am I restless, irritable, and discontented, but I'm jealous, full of self-pity, full of rage, full of fear, full of confusion, and full of baloney. 
But the bottom line is, after I've succumbed to the desire again, as so many do, and the phenomenon of craving develops, they pass through the well-known stages of a spree, emerging remorseful with a firm resolution not to drink again. This is repeated over and over. And unless this person can experience an entire psychic change, spiritual awakening, there is very little hope of his recovery. Food was never the problem. It was the solution to the problem. Now, if the mental twist and the mental blank spot were my only problems, I would carry candy around in, in, a, in a pouch, and every time I got full of emotion, I would pop in an M&M or I would pop in something, and I'd be fine. But that's just half my problem. The other half is the physical allergy. Any description of this disease, which leaves out this physical factor, Dr. Silkworth tells me, is incomplete. So I cannot use candy. I cannot use bread or fried foods or the things that jazz me up to be a solution because I will not be able to control the amount I eat once those things are inside of me. So let's continue. He fools himself inwardly he would give anything to take a half a dozen drinks and get away with them. He will presently try the old game again, for he isn't happy about his sobriety. And that line, he isn't happy about his sobriety, is something that is worth talking about, so we're going to. You see on page 58 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, it says very simply, if you want what we have, and you're willing to go to any length to get it, then you're ready to take certain steps. Time out because my facocta allergies are acting up. Hold on. (sighs) Sorry. Okay. Now, let's take a look at that line from page 58. If you want what we have, what is it that we have? We have people that are not eating compulsively. Yeah, that's very true. But they have that over at the restaurant, too. They have that everywhere you go. They have people that are right now at the donut shop not eating compulsively. They may be having a cup of coffee, and they've split a donut with their spouse. They're not eating compulsively. But what we have are people that are not eating compulsively, that are compulsive overeaters, and they are happy in their release. That's the difference. You see, I'm not eating compulsively today, and I'm happy about it. If you're miserable, if you're not happy about it, grab one of us. Every single day on a vision for you after the second meeting, every day the unrecorded meeting, which starts at... I'm trying to translate Pacific time into Eastern time, 7 to 8, 8 to 9. The one that starts from 8, the one that ends at 10 minutes to 9 Eastern time, there are going to be lots of people identifying in as sponsors. I hope I got the time right. There are going to be people that are going to be identifying in as sponsors. And not only do they want to sponsor you, they need to for their own recovery. We do this for free and for fun. And we do this because we need to. We do this because sponsoring is the only way we have of keeping what we've been so freely given. But we are happy in our release. And that comes about only one way, through the working of the steps and having a spiritual awakening as the result 
of that endeavor. He cannot picture life without alcohol. Someday he will be unable to imagine life either with alcohol or without it. I couldn't imagine life without the food. Food was my buddy. Food was my lover. Food was my friend. Food was everything to me. I couldn't imagine life without it, and I would have rather died than given up my food. Thank God I didn't get my way. Then he will know loneliness such as few do. He will be at the jumping off place. He will wish for the end. And this is exactly true for me. We have shown how we got out from under. You say, yes, I'm willing, but am I to be consigned to a life where I shall be stupid, boring, and glum like some righteous people I see? You know, I must get along without liquor, but how can I have you a sufficient substitute? Oh, yes, <laughs> there is a substitute, and it is vastly more than that. It is a fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous. There you will find release from care, boredom, and worry. Your imagination will be fired. Life will mean something at last. The most satisfactory years of your existence lie ahead. Thus we find the fellowship, and so will you. I don't have the time in this forum to tell you how much life means to me now that I have recovery, now that I am in this fellowship. But what I will say to you is this. There is a place that I can go where I can understand and be understood. Where there are people that speak and understand the language of the heart. That no matter what we look like, be we white, be we black, yellow, green, orange, yellow or polka dot, Jewish, Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, what have you, all are welcome here. And not only all are welcome here, but every one of you, everyone listening to my voice, whether it's on the recording or whether it's live on the phone this morning on April the 25th, 2021. We are part of the tapestry that makes this what it is. Yes, you. You're sitting alone right now. You may be listening to this, and you say to yourself, am I part of this? Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. How is this to come about, you ask? Where am I to find these people? You are going to meet these new friends in your community near you. Alcoholics are dying helplessly like people in a sinking ship. If you live in a large place, there are hundreds, high and low, rich and poor. These are future fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Among them, you will make lifelong friends. You will be bound to them with new and wonderful ties, for you will escape disaster together, and you will commence shoulder to shoulder your common journey. How much do I have in common with the people that I'm closest to in this program? Often very little. Some are a different religion, some are a different race, some are a different ethnicity. Whatever that may be, it's okay. Because I have friends of mine that live here in Arizona and live in Chicago that I have known for all 66 years of my life. I love them and they love me. I would, I would tell you that life would not have been as joyous had they not been on my journey. I adore them and I always will. But you... You 
understand me at a level that they never could. They could never understand in a million years why I got up at 5 o'clock or 4 o'clock in the morning to be on a telephone call at 5.30 a.m. Pacific time to share with you this morning that they cannot understand. Because to them, I've lost a lot of weight. What's the big deal? Just keep going and don't worry about it. They don't understand. But you speak and understand the language of the heart. You are the only group I can turn to where I have this common journey and we trudge that road together of happy destiny. Then you will know what it means to give of yourself that others may survive and rediscover life. You will learn the full meaning of love thy neighbor as thyself. It may seem incredible that these men are to become happy, respected, and useful once more. How can they rise out of such misery, bad repute, and hopelessness? The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Oh, yes, they can. You think to yourself that you're maybe different. That's the action of the ego. I used to think that too. I used to sit in rooms of Overeaters Anonymous meetings back in 1979, 80, 81, whatever it was, and I was 30 years younger than anybody in that room. I came in at 24 years of age, and I was three, 400 pounds fatter than anybody in that room. And I thought to myself, what do these people know? I'm different. I had a conversation, and I've listened to podcasts with Clancy Immislin. May he rest in peace. Clancy was a very, very respected member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he helped Overeaters Anonymous in its earliest days by speaking at some of the meetings because the AAs had some something that the OAs didn't have. They had a knowledge of the steps and they had some recovery. We didn't have that because there was no one in the rooms that wasn't dieting with group support at first. So Clancy used to speak at some of the early OA meetings and he said to me on a couple of occasions where he visited the um, the North Scottsdale Fellowship Club, and I went over there to talk to him, and he would reaffirm this, and he would say to me all the time, it may seem incredible that we can be happy and respected, but we can be, and how do we do that? We do that because we keep doing respectable, self-esteeming action after action after action, and that this fellowship is the place that I can go to speak and understand the language of the heart. And yes, they can happen to you. But one of the things he said that really speaks to what we just read is, every alcoholic that goes to God unrecovered, they're just drinking, 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 and they die that has come into Alcoholics Anonymous. I forgot to use, I forgot to predicate. They came into Alcoholics Anonymous or they come into Overeaters Anonymous and they die in the disease. They go to God and they say, God, why didn't you help me? And God says to them, I sent you the fellowship. You came to some meetings. Why didn't you continue? And the alcoholic screams at God, but you don't understand. My case is different. The three jobs the ego has, the demonic, destructive ego has three jobs. 
make me right, make me different, and make me feel good right now. I need to be different from everybody else. That's the action of the ego. And the truth of the matter is, the greatest thing I can be is just another bozo on the bus. The age of miracles is still with us. Our own recovery proves that. And we have to work at this and work at this. It says, should you wish, I don't think I read that line. Sorry about that. The practical answer is that since these things have happened among us, they can happen with you. Should you wish them above all else and be willing to make use of our experience, we are sure they will come. The age of miracles is still with us, our own recovery prove that. This is not a program for people who need it. This is not a program for people who want it. It's a program for people who do it. Who do I see on the struggle bus? On the struggle bus, I see people that are not doing what they need to do. I got a call yesterday from a woman who's very frustrated. Her sponsor gave her some stuff to do. Are you doing it? No, but I'm frustrated. Do the work, but I'm frustrated. Do the work. And that was like a tennis match constantly telling me how frustrated she was, and I kept saying, do the work. Our, page 153, our hope is that when this chip of a book is launched on the world tide of alcoholism, defeated drinkers will seize upon, us, upon it to follow its suggestions. Many, we are sure, will rise to their feet and march on. They will approach still other sick ones, and fellowships of Alcoholics Anonymous may spring in each city and hamlet, havens for those who must find a way out. And that has come to pass. In the chapter, Working with Others, you gathered an idea of how we approach and aid others to health. Suppose now that through you, several families have adopted this way of life. You will want to know more about how to proceed from that point. From that point. Perhaps the best way of treating you to a glimpse of your future will be to describe the growth of the fellowship among us. Here is a brief account. Years ago in 1935, one of our number made a journey to a certain western city. We're recounting Bill Wilson's travels to Akron, Ohio. From a business standpoint, his trip came off badly. Yes, they never did take over Akron City Rubber, they, a rubber and tool. They never did, and the business venture failed. Had he been successful in his enterprise, he would have been set on his feet financially, which at the time seemed vitally important. But his venture wound up in a lawsuit and bogged down completely. The proceeding was shot through with much hard feeling and controversy. Bitterly discouraged, he found himself in a strange place, discredited and almost broke, still physically weak and sober but a few months. Now, this is May of 1935. Bill Wilson will get sober on December 14, 1934, at the town's hospital. So he has had five months of sobriety, five months of sobriety. He, he was 40 years old. He saw that his predicament was dangerous. He wanted so much to talk with someone, but whom? One dismal afternoon, he paced a hotel lobby wondering how his bill was to be paid. Sorry about this, my focaccia allergies. <laughs> okay. 
At one end of the room stood a glass-covered directory of local churches. Down the lobby, a door opened into an attractive bar. He could see the gay crowd inside. In there, he would find companionship and release. Unless he took some drinks, he might not have the courage to scrape an acquaintance and would have a lonely weekend. It was a Saturday. It was May the 13th, May 12th, excuse me. In 1935, it was the day before Mother's Day. It was a very rainy, cold Saturday afternoon, and he's in the hotel, and he barely has enough money to to eat. He may not have, he doesn't really have enough to even pay his bill. Of course he couldn't drink, but why not sit hopefully at a table, a bottle of ginger ale before him? After all, had he not been sober six months now? He had gotten sober in December. This was May. Perhaps he could handle, say, three drinks. No more. Fear gripped him. He was on thin ice. Again, it was that old, insidious insanity, the first drink. With a shiver, he turned away and walked down the lobby to the church directory. Music and gay chatter still floated to him from the bar. But what about his responsibilities, his family, and the men who would die because they would not know how to get well? Ah, yes, those other alcoholics. There must be a there must be many such in this town. He would phone a clergyman. His sanity returned, and he thanked God. Selecting a church at random from the directory, he stepped into a booth and lifted the receiver. Now. We get the impression that Reverend Tunks was the first person he called. That is not the case. Now, I've trained telephone salesmen for 40 years. It's the business I'm in. And many of them get discouraged and they can't take the rejection. Bill Wilson called up nine or ten clergy people in Akron. And he had his pitch down. He says, I'm a rum hound from New York. I'm here in Akron on a business venture. Do you know another drunk that I can talk to? And they said, what the heck are you calling me for? People that come to my church don't drink. People that come to my church, they go to church. Why don't I see you tomorrow in church? Just come on over. But I don't know any drunks. What are you bothering me for? And they would slam the phone down. And this happened, bang, 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 bang. These clergy people did not want to be bothered with this rum hound from New York. Now, I don't know about you, but that would discourage a lot of people. But he kept dialing the phone. And what do we say in any kind of sales situation? Hey, it's a numbers game. It's a numbers game. And Bill finally called Reverend Tunks. And the rest is history. Let him let us let him tell you. His call to the clergyman, Reverend Tunks, led him presently to a certain resident of that town. And who was the resident of that town? Henrietta Cyberling. The Cyberlings owned Goodyear Rubber Company. Does that sound familiar? Because it should. Goodyear tires. They were very, very wealthy people, but Henrietta Cyberling was very active in the Oxford group. The Oxford group in Akron was a very active group, and several weeks before Bill Wilson coming, they decided secretly that they were going to lure Dr. Bob to one of their meetings and pray for him, and they begged God, they asked God to try and help Dr. Bob 
with his drinking. And Henrietta Cyberling, could you just imagine, it's a Saturday afternoon, you get a phone call from somebody that you've never met in your entire life, and they identify themselves as a rum hound from New York, and you say to them, come on over to my house, we've been expecting you. Can you imagine the faith? Is it odd or is it God that it unfolded this way? And by the way, Henrietta Cyberling's son, John Cyberling, is the congressman from Ohio that made a proclamation in the Congress to establish 855 Ardmore Street, Dr. Bob's house, as a national historical site. And on the floor of the Congress, he read a letter from his mother, who was at that time near death, too weak to travel to Washington, describing this scenario when they first met in her home. And the Congress approved Dr. Bob's home at 855 Ardmore in Akron, Ohio, as a national historical landmark. That's her son. And when you go to Dr. Bob's house, if you don't know it, you'll miss it because there's a plaque outside establishing that it's a historical place. And it says, Representative from Ohio, John Cyberling. This is Henrietta's son. Okay, give you a little history behind what we're reading here. Who, though formerly able and respected, was then nearing the nadir of alcoholic despair. That's Dr. Bob. It was the unusual, it wasn't the unusual situation. It was the usual situation. Sorry, I get so excited about the history. I want to go on and on about the cyberlings, and I can't. Okay, home in jeopardy, wife, ill, children distracted, bills in arrears, and standing damage. He had a desperate desire to stop, but saw no way out. He had earned, for he had earnestly tried many avenues of escape, painfully aware of being somehow abnormal. The man did not fully realize what it meant to be alcoholic. Now, Dr. Bob was a doctor, and Leah, we are going to definitely run over time here, I can promise you. But Dr. Bob was a doctor. He did not know, even as a doctor, he did not know about the twist of the mind that Silkworth observed. He did not know about the physical allergy. And this was new information for Dr. Bob that was coming to him from a non-medical person in the form of Bill Wilson. When our friend related his experience, the man agreed that no amount of willpower he might muster could stop his drinking for long. A spiritual experience, he conceded, was absolutely necessary, but the price seemed high upon the basis suggested. He told how he lived in constant worry about those who might find out about his alcoholism. He had, of course, the familiar alcoholic obsession that few knew of his drinking, why, he argued, should he lose the remainder of his business only to bring still more suffering to his family by foolishly admitting his plight to people from whom he made his livelihood? He would do anything he said but that. In other words, he was not going to do step nine. And what do we know? Dr. Bob did not stay sober for very long. 
He drank again in June. He meets Bill Wilson on Mother's Day, May 13, 1935, and gets drunk again in June at the American Medical Association Convention in Atlantic City. But he was drunk before he got to Atlantic City. He had been plotting this, and Dr. Bob's wife, Ann, begged Bill not to let him go, but he was drunk in the train station, and he stayed drunk the entire time he was in Atlantic City, and he came home to Akron drunk because he would not make an amends. And if you won't do these things, you're going to eat again. It is a certainty. It's not a hypothesis. It's not a maybe. You will eat again, no matter what we think. It's what we do, and if we don't do the work, we're going to eat again, bottom line, or we're going to purge again, or we're going to restrict again. Being intrigued, however, we invited our friend to his home sometime later, and just as he thought he was getting control of his liquor situation, he went on a roaring bender, and I just told you about that. For him, there was, that was this, ugh. for him, this was the spree that ended all sprees. He saw he would have to face his problems squarely that God might give him mastery. So one morning he took the bull by the horns and set out to tell those he feared what his trouble had been. He found himself surprisingly well received and learned that many knew of his drinking. No kidding. The only one in Akron that didn't know Bob was an alcoholic was Bob. Stepping into his car, he made the rounds of people he had hurt. He trembled as he went about, for this might mean ruin, particularly to a person in his line of business. He was a proctologist. He was a doctor. At midnight, he came home exhausted, but very happy. He has not had a drink since, and we shall see he now means a great deal to his community and have major li- and the major liabilities of 30 years of hard drinking have been repaired in four. There are four impediments to God. What is an impediment? An impediment is something which stops or slows progress. The four impediments are where we get steps four through nine. They are from Sam Shoemaker, and they appear in a book called Twice Ministered on page 92. They are a resentment that you will not let go of, step four. A secret that you will not tell, step five. A hurtful thrill that you will not stop, step six and seven. By a hurtful thrill, I mean stealing, gossiping, lying, manipulating. If you don't stop that, you won't recover. And last but not least, for steps eight and nine, a restitution that you will not make. Remember that amends is AA language, but restitution is Oxford group language. Oxford groupers didn't talk about making amends. They talked about making restitution. means the same thing. To restitute means to restore. That's where the word restore comes from. From the same word restus means to replace or to restore. But life was not easy for the two friends. Plenty of difficulties presented themselves. Both saw that they must keep spiritually active. And this is the big thing I see today in myself and others. We have to remain spiritually active. Remember that the disease is permanent. The disease is progressive. 
the disease is fatal. I have a friend that lives in Oklahoma. He says the disease is permanent, progressive, and fatal. He, he likes to call it the three Ps, but it's permanent, progressive, and fatal. So as a progressive disease, I must have a recovery that is also progressive. One day they called up the head nurse of a local hospital. They explained their need and inquired if she had a first-class alcoholic prospect. Oh, she replied, yes, we've got a corker. He just beaten up a couple of nurses, goes off his head completely when he's drinking, but he's a grand chap when he's sober, though he's been in here eight times in the last six months. Understand he was once a well-known lawyer in town, but just now, we've got him strapped down tight. This is talking about Bill Dotson, who will become Alcoholics Anonymous number three. We're going to talk about him. I know the time is way, way over. Okay, here was a prospect, all right, but hurt. But by the description, none too promising. The use of spiritual principles in such cases was not so well understood as it is now. But one of the friends said, Dr. Bob, put him in a private room, we'll be down. Now, we're going to visit Bill Dotson. Now, Bill Dotson was a lawyer from Carlisle, Kentucky. He had a very thick accent, and if you've heard tapes of him, Ah, these two fellers came in my room, and they were laughing it up. And that's how he talked. He, he, he had a very thick Kentucky accent, but, he, but fate and life took him to Akron, Ohio. Now, he's an alcoholic. Now, one of the questions that we get in Vision for You in the second meeting where you can ask questions is, how long does a person have to be sober before you can start working the steps? And now the big book is going to answer that question for the second time. The first time was in Bill's story, and this is the second time. Two days later, not two weeks, not a month, not a day, Two days later, a future fellow of Alcoholics Anonymous stared glassily at the strangers beside his bed. Who are you fellas and why this private room? I was always in a ward before. Bill Dotson was very scared, and he told his wife, whose name also was Henrietta, but he told his wife that he thought he was dying, and that's why they put him in a private room. He, they put him in the private room while he was asleep because they knocked him out with drugs. They knocked him out with barbiturates, and he wakes up in a private room, and the first thing he thinks of is, oh, my God, I must be dying because I've never been in a private room before, and he's scared. Said one of the visitors, Dr. Bob, we're giving you a treatment for alcoholism. Hopelessness was written large on the man's face as he replied, Oh, that's no use. Nothing would fix me. I'm a goner. The last three times I got drunk on the way home from here, I'm afraid to go out the door. <clears throat> I can't understand it. For an hour... The two friends told him about their drinking experience. Very key here. What does it say in Chapter 7? Relate 
your experiences. Now they're relating their drinking experience. Notice they didn't say anything about his drinking because they weren't going to do that. They weren't stupid. Over and over he would say, that's me, that's me, I drink like that. Identification. The key to comfort is through identification. Identification. Why is Bill's story chapter one in the book now? Because you identify in. Do I think the way Bill thinks? Do I eat the way Bill drinks? And it is through identification. This is the key. No one will care how much you know until they know how much you care. And they won't believe that you care until they believe that you've walked their path. It is imperative that we share with people our story. We have to because this is how they get better and this is how we get better one to the other. The man in the bed was told of the acute poisoning from which he suffered, how it deteriorates the body of an alcoholic and warps his mind. This is information that Bill is relating from Dr. Silkworth. Now, what's very interesting here, I'm going to get to this in just a second. There was much talk about the mental state preceding the first drink. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about a backstory here. In March of 1934, Bill Wilson was very, very frustrated. And he came home, it was a Tuesday night, and there was an Oxford group meeting that he and Lois were going to. And he says, this doesn't work. He says, damn it, Lois, I thought that I could sober up drunks, and it's not working. Nobody's getting sober. And Lois Wilson could have said to him, you're right, Bill, it doesn't work, so just stop. But she was too smart, and is it odd or is it God? She turned to him, and she was asked about this years later by Clancy Emerson. She was asked about this, and she said it just seemed the most natural thing in the world to say. She turned to him at 182, uh, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, 182 in Brooklyn, Clinton Street. I couldn't think for a minute there. My mind is verklempt. 182 Clinton Street in Brooklyn. And she said, but you're staying sober. And Bill Wilson had an epiphany. Yeah, I'm trying to pass this on, and I'm staying sober. And Lois says to Bill in March of 1934, before you go to Akron next month, because he went there in April, why don't you go talk to Dr. Silkworth? And Dr. Silkworth, the little drunk, the little doctor who loved drunks, Dr. Silkworth wasn't a drunk, the little doctor who loved drunks said to Bill Wilson in his office, he says, Bill, I've heard about some of the shenanigans you're pulling out there. You're pulling these guys off the bar stools and taking them to the Oxford group meetings. Why don't you stop doing that, and why don't you do this instead? Tell these people about the hopeless condition of mind and body, as I told you. Tell them about the physical allergy. Tell them about the peculiar twist of the mind that compels them to drink and that there's no way out except through spiritual means. And Bill Wilson tried this on the first person he could, and it happened to be Dr. Bob Holbrook-Smith. And the second person that they're trying that on now is Bill Dotson. 
And if Bill Wilson was in the room right now with me as I'm speaking, and I wish he was, I'm going to make a statement here that he would agree with. I know he would agree with because I've read his writings. Bill Dotson, as much as Dr. Bob, as much as Ebby, as much as Bill, as much as anybody, was a founder of AA. Why? Because Bill Dotson will become the man on the bed, alcoholics number three, and he proved that Dr. Bob's sobriety was not a fluke, that this method works. He proved that it works. Let's continue. Yes, that's me, said the sick man, Bill Dotson. That's the very image. You two, you fellas know your stuff all right, but I don't see what good it'll do. You fellas are somebody, and I was once, but I'm a nobody now. From what you tell me, I know more than ever. I can't stop. At this, both the visitors burst into a laugh, said the future fellow anonymous. Damn little to laugh about that I can see. The two friends spoke of their spiritual experience. <sighs> Sorry, and told him of the course of action they carried out, the steps. He, inter- he interrupted, I used to be strong for the church, but that won't fix it. I've prayed to God on hangover mornings and sworn that I'd never touch another drop, but by 9 o'clock I'd be boiled as an owl. Boiled as an owl means he was drunk. Next day found the prospect more receptive. He's had a chance to think it over. He had been thinking it over. Maybe you're right, he said. God ought to be able to do anything. Then he added, he sure didn't do much for me when I was trying to fight this booze racket alone. On the third day, notice it doesn't say on the 82nd day, after 90 and 90, after on the third day, the lawyer gave his life to the care and direction of his creator. Step three. Third day, one day of sobriety, he's on step three and step four, and he was perfectly willing to do anything necessary. His wife came scarcely daring to be hopeful, though she thought she saw something different about her husband already. He had begun to have a spiritual experience. Now let's go back and understand what's going on with Bill Dotson here. And the way to understand what's going on with Bill Dotson is to first understand how Bill Wilson describes it on page 12. Toward the bottom of the page, page 12, keep your finger on page 158 because we're coming back to it. It says here, thus was I convinced that God is concerned with us humans when we want him enough. At long last, I saw, I felt, I believed. What did Bill see? He saw recovery. Bill had been hospitalized for his alcoholism many times. Bill Dotson was hospitalized eight times in six months in Akron, but never saw anybody that recovered from it. Now he's looking at two guys. Bill Wilson, Bob Smith, are standing in his room as a physical testimony that this works. I saw I felt, what did Bill Dotson feel? What did Bill Wilson feel? Hope. What did I believe? What did they believe? That God could and would if he were sought. Go back to page 158. 
Bill Dotson needed to see that there was recovery, that these people were as alcoholic as he was, that he needed to see through identification that recovery was possible. Now, we're on the phone. You can't see us. We can't see you either. Come to the conventions. Don't miss them. Come to the meeting every day. Don't miss Vision for You meetings. I don't care what time you have to get up. I don't care what you have to do. You found the time to eat. You found the time to shove the food in your mouth. Get your butt to the meeting. You never know what you're going to hear that's going to help you. There are things being said on every Vision for You meeting I have ever attended, and I've attended zillions of them. Every single time I come out of that meeting on the phone, I heard something that put me closer to God and further away from Chips Ahoy cookies. That afternoon, this is the third day of sobriety. He put on his clothes and walked from the hospital a free man. He entered a political campaign making speeches, frequenting men's gatherings of all sorts, often staying up all night. He lost the race by only a narrow margin. He had found God, and in finding God, had found himself. Now, in this political battle that he was in, his alcoholism was used against him to ruin his character. He was sober a very short period of time. He knew that the outcome of this election was in God's hands. He didn't drink, and he understood that he had to just keep going, and he lost the race. That was June of 1935. He never drank again. He, too, has become a respected and useful member of his community. He has helped other men recover and is a power in the church from which he was long absent. Now, a lot of people, they take a long time to work the steps. God bless them. Dr. Bob will get sober on June the 10th, 1935. The truth of the matter is he got sober on June 17th, 1935, because if you look up the American Medical Association records for the convention of 35, it didn't end on the 10th. It started on the 10th, and Bob wasn't home until the 17th. But let's just go with the dates that they gave. June 26, 1935, they visit Bill Dotson in the hospital. June the 10th, 1935, Bob Smith is sober. Sixteen days after Bob completed his work, he was out doing 12-step calls. And this wasn't the first call they made. The bottom line is we get going and we keep going quickly, Andale, Schnell, quickly, fast, delaying it and protracting it out does nothing. Bottom of 158. So you see there were three alcoholics in that town who now felt they had to give to others and they had they, that, well, what they had found or be sunk. After several failures to find others, a fourth turned up. This would be Ernie Galbraith. And Ernie Galbraith will become Alcoholics Anonymous number four. He will not stay sober. 
He will marry Dr. Bob's daughter, Sue. Dr. Bob's daughter, Sue, was interested in a guy named Ray Windows. Sort of sounds like a Microsoft operating system, Ray Windows. But anyway, and she will eventually marry him later on in life after Ernie and her divorce. But Ernie Galbraith was, a, was, was this kid that we're talking about here. He came through an acquaintance who had heard the good news. The acquaintance that he came through was his parents, who were very religious, and they were friends with T. Henry and Clarice Williams, who hosted a lot of Oxford group meetings that the boys went to. He proved to be a devil-may-care young fellow whose parents could not make out whether he wanted to stop drinking or not. They were deeply religious people, much shocked by their son's refusal to have anything to do with the church. He suffered horribly from his sprees, but it seemed as if nothing could be done for him. He consented, however, to go to the hospital where he occupied the very room recently vacated by the lawyer. Now, Ernie Galbraith will marry Sue Smith. Sue Smith is Dr. Bob's daughter, and Dr. Bob was very upset that Sue seemed interested in Ray Windows. And Ray left Akron, so she couldn't pursue him anymore. He left Akron for a job. This was the height of the Depression. You had to go where you could get a job. And so she became interested in Ernie. And uh, Dr. Bob and Ann Smith did not really approve of Ernie. I won't go into the whole thing because of time. But Ernie and uh, Ernie Galbraith will write a story in the first edition of the big book called The Seven-Month Slip. He, they will marry in 1941, and Ernie was in and out and in and out of sobriety, and he will continue drinking. Ernie will continue drinking until 1946. They will divorce in 1965. Now, Dr. Bob's granddaughter, Bana, Sue and Ernie had two kids. I won't go into the whole history, but Bana... Uh, was Dr. Bob's granddaughter, and when Dr. Bob's granddaughter grew up, it was apparent that she had some mental illness, and she would kill her own six-year-old child and then kill herself in the mid-1960s. This was what happened to Dr. Bob's granddaughter, but Dr. Bob didn't live that He died in 1950, so he wasn't aware of any of that stuff, but that's what happened in their family, and then not long after Bonna killed herself and her six-year-old, Sue and Ernie were divorced by that time. She would reacquaint with Ray Windows and remarry him. So she did end up with the guy that she wanted when she was a teenager. Anyway, it's a little background there. Uh, take with it, take it with a grain of salt. But that's a little background on their story. He had three visitors. After a bit, he said, "The way you fellas put this spiritual stuff makes sense." This is Ernie Galbraith now. I'm ready to do business. I guess the old folks were right after all. So one more was added to the fellowship. All this time, our friend of the hotel lobby incident, Bill Wilson, remained in that town. He was there three months. He won't leave there until September, June to September. <clears throat> he now returned home, home to New York, leaving behind his first acquaintance, the lawyer and the devil-may-care chap. These men had found something brand new in life, though they knew they must help other alcoholics if they would remain sober. Again and again and again and again, it is going to say to us in this book that we must help other alcoholics. And my friend in South Jersey will say, you're afraid to sponsor? 
you better be afraid not to. You better be afraid not. You better be. You better be afraid not to sponsor, because you do not get this program by absorbing spiritual information. You will get this program by transmitting spiritual information, not by absorbing it. You must work with others. It is a 12-step program, not an 11-step program. You're scared to do it. Don't worry about it. You're just the source of the source. Shine the light on the big book. If they want to recover, they will. If they don't, they won't. There's nothing you can do about it. Don't be results-oriented. It's not up to you to produce results. It's just up to you to transmit the information. We are not in the results business. It was... They would remain sober. That motive became secondary. It was transcended by the happiness they found in giving themselves for others. They shared their homes, their slender resources, and gladly devoted their spare hours to fellow sufferers. They were willing by day or night to place a new man in the hospital and visit him afterward. They grew in numbers. They experienced a few distressing failures, but in those cases, they made an effort to bring the man's family into a spiritual way of living, thus relieving much worry and suffering. Now, the fellowship will start in June of 1935. This is a year and six months later. This is January of 37. A year and six months later, these three had succeeded with seven more. There was ten people in the world there in AA. Seeing much of each other, scarce an evening passed that someone's home did not shelter a little gathering of men and women, happy in their release, again, happy in their release, not stark raving abstinent, and constantly thinking how they, must, how they might present their discovery to some newcomer. Again, how can we carry the message? In addition to these casual get-togethers, it became customary to set apart one night a week for a meeting to be attended by anyone or everyone interested in a spiritual way of life, Oxford Group. Aside from fellowship and sociability, the prime object was to provide a time and place where new people might bring their problems. Now, when it says new people bring their problems, we are not talking, boys and girls, about, oh, my car wouldn't start, oh, my wife's a witch, oh, my husband's a jerk. They're not talking about that. They're talking about their problems with alcoholism. That's what they're talking about. And this is the purpose of your meeting. This is, you know, this is the purpose of a meeting. Outsiders became interested. One man and his wife, T. Henry and Clarice Williams, placed their home at the disposal of this strangely assorted crowd. This couple has since become so fascinated that they have dedicated their home to the work. Many a distracted wife has visited this house to find loving and understanding companionship among women who knew their problem, to hear from the lips of their husbands what had happened to them, to be advised how their own wayward mate may be hospitalized and approach when next he stumbled. Many a man yet dazed from his hospital experience has stepped over the threshold of that home into freedom. How free do you want to be? You've got to do the work. Many an alcoholic who entered there came away with an answer. He succumbed to that gay crowd inside who laughed at their own misfortunes and understood his. Impressed by those who visited him at the hospital, he capitulated entirely when later in an upper room of this house he heard the story of some man whose experience closely tallied with, that, with his own. 
the expression on the faces of the women, that indefinable something in the eyes of the men, the stimulating and electric atmosphere of the place conspired to let him know there was haven at last. Before God closes your eyes, get yourself to Akron, Ohio, and go into that home and go into the room that they're describing. It's a small little room. This is a very modest house. You think it's a doctor, so you think, oh, it's going to be a big, glorious house. Uh Uh-uh, nothing could be further from the truth. It's very small, very intimate, very modest. And you think to yourself, as you stand in the threshold of the room, you can't go in to some of the rooms. It's roped off. If these walls could talk, the miracles that have happened in that home. And there are miracles headed down the pike for you and for me. The very practical approach to his problems, the absence of intolerance of any kind, the informality, the genuine democracy, the uncanny understanding which these people were irresistible. He and his wife would would leave elated by the thought of what they could now do for some stricken acquaintance and his family. They knew they had a host of new friends. It seemed they had known these strangers always. There's just an instant camaraderie. They had seen miracles, and one was to come to them. They had visioned the great reality, their loving and all-powerful creator. Now this house will hardly accommodate its weekly visitors, for they number 60 or 80 as a rule. Alcoholics are being attracted from far and near, from surrounding towns. Families drive long distances to be present. A community 30 miles away has 15 fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. Being a large place, we think that someday its fellowship will number many hundreds. He's talking about Cleveland, Ohio. But life among Alcoholics Anonymous is more than attending gatherings and visiting hospitals, cleaning up old scrapes, helping to settle family differences, explaining the disinherited son to his irate parents, lending money and securing jobs for each other when justified. These are everyday occurrences. No one is too discredited or sunk too low to be welcomed cordially, if he means business. If you don't mean business, maybe not. Social distinctions, petty rivalries and jealousies, these are laughed out of continents. Being wrecked in the same vessel, being restored and united under one God with hearts and minds attuned to the welfare of others, the things which matter so much to some people no longer signify much to them. How could they? Under only slightly different conditions, the same thing is taking place in many eastern cities. In one of these, there is a well-known hospital for the treatment of alcoholic and drug addiction. He's talking about the Towns Hospital in New York. Six years ago, one of our number was a patient there, Bill Wilson. Many of us have felt for the first time the presence and power of God within its walls. P and P are capitalized. We are greatly indebted to the doctor in attendance, Silkworth. Therefore he, although therefore he, although it might prejudice his own work, has told us of his belief in ours. No matter what happens, Dr. Silkworth will always be an integral part of what this is. Without Dr. Silkworth, there is no program. There's just there's there's no understanding of the problem. And if you don't have an understanding of the problem, then the, you have nothing to build on. The doctor's opinion is the 
foundation on which everything will be built. And my ability to accept the information in the doctor's opinion will mark the urgency with which I will work the rest of the steps. Every few days, this doctor suggests our approach to one of his patients. Understanding our work, he can do this with an eye to selecting those who are willing and able to recover on a spiritual basis. Many of us, former patients, go there to help. Then in this eastern city, New York, there are informal meetings such as we have described to you where you may now see scores of members. There are the same fast friendships. There is the same helpfulness to one another as you find among our Western friends. So you had New York, you had Akron, and you had Cleveland at this time. There is a good bit of travel between east and west, and we foresee a great increase in this helpful interchange. Someday we hope that every alcoholic who journeys will find a fellowship of alcoholics anonymous at his destination. To some extent, this is already true. Some of us are salesmen and go about. Little clusters of twos and threes and fives of us have sprung up in other communities, though contact with our larger centers... <clears throat> Through contact, sorry, with our two larger centers, those of us who travel drop in as often as we can. This practice enables us to lend a hand, at the same time avoiding certain alluring distractions of the road about which any traveling man can inform you. Thus we grow, and so can you. Though you be but one man with this book in your hand, we believe and hope it contains all you need to begin we know what you are thinking, that you are saying to yourself, I'm jittery, jittery and alone. I couldn't do that, but you can. You forget that you have just now tapped a source of power much greater than yourself. To duplicate with such backing what we have accomplished is only a matter of willingness, patience, and labor. We know of an AA member who is, was living in a large community. This is Hank Parkhurst he's talking about. He had lived there but a few weeks when he found that the place probably contained more alcoholics than per square inch than any city in the country. He lived in New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey. There was only a few, this was only a few days ago at this writing, 1939. The authorities were much concerned. He got in touch with a prominent psychiatrist. This would be Dr. Howard, who was from Montclair, New Jersey. Dr. Howard changed the big book by telling Bill not to write it in the imperative, but to write it in the declarative. What's the difference? The imperative is you do this and you do that. And chapter 7 is still in the imperative. But the rest of the book had to be changed, and Bill was very resistant to this. But Dr. Howard said an alcoholic mind is not going to accept being told what to do. So they changed everything, and it said, these are the steps we took. These are the things we found. These are the things we did. And it became much, much, much more effective. He got in touch with a prominent, oh, sorry, uh, who had undertaken certain responsibilities for the mental health of the community. The doctor proved to be able and exceedingly anxious to adopt any workable method of handling the situation. So he inquired what our friend, what did our friend have on the ball? Our friend proceeded to tell him, and with such good effect, 
that the doctor agreed to a test among his patients and certain other alcoholics from a clinic which he attends. Arrangements were also made with the chief psychiatrist of a large public hospital to select still others from the stream of misery which flows through that institution. And he's talking about Dr. Russell Bladesdale, Bladesdale of Bellevue. So our fellow worker will soon have friends galore. Some of them may sink and perhaps never get up. But if our experience is a criterion, more than half of these approached will become fellows of Alcoholics Anonymous. When a few men in this city have found themselves and have discovered the joy of helping others to face life again, there will be no stopping until everyone in that town has had his opportunity to recover, if he can and will. Still, you may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with the, with you who write this book. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. And here's our final benediction that we use all the time and will be done. And I'll turn it back over to Leah. Much too tardy, but I will turn it over. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God, steps one through three. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows, four through seven. Clear away the wreckage of your past, eight and nine. Give freely of what you find and join us, ten through twelve. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Before I close and before I give it back to Leah, I just want to remind you, I came into this program a bloody, beaten man. I relapsed in this program. I thought I was too good for this program. I left. I graduated. I, I, I ate. I was an idiot. But eventually I came back. No greater joy, no greater way of life is there described in this world than this way of life. The people that I've met have touched me to the core of my soul, and hopefully they understand a smidgen of what they have done. I wanted to die so badly. I was emasculated. I was defeated. I was rejected. I was laughed at. I was an object of ridicule wherever I went. You gave me a book. You gave me your hand. You gave me your heart. You shared your program with me. You allowed me to be one of you. And in return, I hope in some small way that I could give back to you. God has given me so much. I like myself. I have 22 years of abstinence. There are things about my life that I wish were different. There are things about my life that I pray to God will change. But I have a joy. 
I like myself. I love God, and I love Overeaters Anonymous. Thank you for allowing me in your hearts and your telephones, your ears this morning. And uh, I want to thank Leah for allowing me this time. And uh, with that, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you so much, Harlan, for this beautiful exploration of Chapter 11 of Vision for You. Truly fascinating and thorough coverage. And uh, just, I feel well satiated, (laughs) that's for sure. Um, A lot of ground to cover, and you did it just magnificently, as always. The share ID for this morning's presentation, 16,832. That's 16832. Quite a history lesson here this morning. A lot to absorb and learn from, that's for sure. Uh, perhaps there might be one or two questions on people's minds. Let's give an opportunity for that before we close together. Is there someone who has something on their mind they'd like to ask Harlan? Question only, please. No food questions, and for the right. love of God, no math questions. Yeah, no phone no math. Uh, the phone lum- number will be given at the conclusion of the recording. Um, again, do you have a question for Harlan? the speaker, just something uh, that related to what he spoke about, please. Star one to unmute. Sorry, C. Laureen. Laureen, go ahead, and then we'll wrap with Sorry, C. Thank you. Go ahead, Laureen. Thank you. Thank you for the excellent presentation, Harlan. Could you again um, just list the three ego statements? Make me different. The ego has three jobs. Make me different, make me right, make me feel good right now. Okay, thank you so much. Okay. That was an easy one. Sorry. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Who's next? Suri, I think, is next. Um, Suri, yes, yes, you had a question related to the yeah, presentation. Can I, can I be heard? Yes, can I be yes, heard? Yes, we hear you, Suri. Thank you. Um, uh, thank you so much for your share. Uh, the question is, you spoke about the dance, my willing and do, and how would you, I spoke about how do you what? stop the dance? The dance of like, am I willing and the willingness and the doing, how do you stop the dance? How do you transition away from that dance? You have to put the food down. And how do you put the food down? You put the food down by putting the food down. It's no no more complicated than that. It doesn't need philosophizing about. It doesn't need thinking. It doesn't need anything. I put the Oreo cookies down by putting the Oreo cookies down. And I've worked the steps with a sponsor. And I earnestly say, yes, I'm going to do whatever it takes. My way isn't working. What I'm doing is not working. And I put the food down by putting the food down. And I can take abstinent food and destroy my life on it. I weigh and measure my oatmeal. I weigh and measure my proteins. I weigh and measure whatever. I don't sit and weigh and measure an orange. I don't sit and weigh and measure an apple. That I don't do. I don't sit and weigh and measure cauliflower or whatever. No, that I'm not doing. But what I do is I make sure that I have the food down, I keep the food down, and after two days I start working the steps with a recovered sponsor. It's not any more complicated than that, Suri. 
but thanks for the question. Yes, Sorry. thank you for those questions. And again, Harlan, thank you for this just beautiful, beautiful, magnificent uh, bringing yes, to life. What was the name of the book? Excuse me. What was the name of the book that he read from? Yes. Hi. Good morning. Yeah, the we're reading from book. Alcoholics Anonymous. The Called basic Alcoholics text. Anonymous. So that was from the big book. Correct. Thank You're you going to find that. specifically what he uh, brought to life, what Harlan brought to life. Chapter 11, A Vision for You. It begins on page 151. And thank you, Harlan. Such a beautiful history lesson this morning. Rich and deep and profound, that's for sure. And speaking of a vision for you, let's close now. From page 164, a page that we read at the closing of every meeting. And it begins like this. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. Answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you. Until then.